Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. We've had a lot of stuff going on. Uh, uh, lately, but obviously I signed the, the, the 15 week. I believe it, I believe it's constitutional both under the federal and under the state constitution. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis may not have listened to the oral arguments at the Florida Supreme Court over the state's 15 week abortion ban. But after reshaping the court into what many consider to be one of the most conservative courts in the country, he probably can predict the outcome. The case brought by Planned Parenthood centers on a provision in the Florida Constitution that protects the right to privacy, a provision that has long been interpreted by the state's courts as a safeguard against restrictions on abortion. But the seven justices, which included five conservatives appointed by DeSantis and two other Republican appointees, appeared open to the idea of upholding the abortion ban despite precedent. In fact, the Chief Justice, Carlos Muniz, seemed to suggest several times that he considers fetuses to be human beings. You're asking us to essentially take a whole class of human beings and put them outside of the protection of the law, essentially in the sense that if the legislature wants to protect those human beings, they are precluded by the Constitution of Florida from doing that. And at at the end of the day, the argument as to why that would be right would be based on a, a sort of legal meaning kind of understanding of right of privacy. My guest is Elizabeth Sepper, a professor at the University of Texas at Austin School of Law. Since Roe v. Wade was overturned, Florida has allowed abortion up to 15 weeks. Governor DeSantis signed a new law that would ban abortion after six weeks. So do these Florida Supreme Court arguments affect the 15-week ban or the six-week ban or both? The argument affects the six-week law because the six-week law is a trigger ban. It will go into effect 30 days after the 15-week ban is upheld, if it is upheld. So they're closely related. The Florida Supreme Court knows that whatever it decides with regard to the 15-week ban will affect whether the six-week ban exists. So explain the issue, how it centers on a provision in the Florida Constitution that protects the right to privacy. So the Florida Constitution has an explicit protection for a right of privacy. And in 1989, the Florida Supreme Court interpreted that text in the state constitution to include a right to abortion and to protect, in that specific case, a minor's right to abortion. So the question that the state of Florida has put before the Florida Supreme Court is whether they should overrule their previous precedent protecting a right to privacy under the explicit text of the state constitution. So unlike the federal constitution, we actually have a textual protection for the right to privacy. What's at stake here is precedent then, if they're going to reverse precedent or not. This 
case squarely presents the question presented in Dobbs at the end of the day, whether to overrule existing precedent that is many decades old in the state of Florida under a state constitutional provision that expressly protects the right to privacy. As in Dobbs, what's at stake is whether Floridians can access abortion really at all. Several of the justices were drilling the lawyers on both sides about how they could know what was in the minds of Florida voters when they passed the privacy amendment. Do you see that as a problem for the plaintiff, Planned Parenthood here? So a lot of the argument focused on what's called original public meaning. What would a Florida voter have understood when they cast their vote in favor of a right of privacy in the Constitution. They amended the Constitution to create a right of privacy. Some of this is a little bit baffling, right? Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973. It's pretty commonsensical to think the right of privacy as a constitutional matter for voters would have brought to mind abortion as well as contraception during the relevant time period. And the Florida Supreme Court in 1989 concluded just that, right? We just voted on this. It's quite clear that the voters meant to protect abortion through a right of privacy. Apparently, the historical record isn't super robust in terms of legislative debate. But what courts are supposed to do here is engage in textual interpretation, look at the text of the Florida Constitution. They can do things like look at the ballot summary. What did people think they were voting on? But all of those factors seem to lead, given our common sense understanding of what the right to privacy means, toward a conclusion in favor of the plaintiff, that is Planned Parenthood here. But it seemed like the justices here were leaning in the opposite direction. We should mention that there are seven justices hearing this case with five conservatives appointed by DeSantis and two other Republican appointees, including one who refused to recuse himself, despite the fact that he's married to a Republican state representative who co-sponsored the six-week ban. So did it seem like the composition of this panel did not augur well for Planned Parenthood? Absolutely. We didn't need to listen to the argument to conclude what was going to happen here. We're going to have seven votes, seven justices who are Republican, five of whom are put there for this very specific task, we will see them overrule a number of state court decisions in favor of abortion rights in that state court. The question is, what do they say? How do they go about overturning their own precedent? So what would be the broadest thing they could say and what would be the narrowest thing they could say? I suspect they will say the broadest thing they can say, which is that there is no right to abortion protected under the right of privacy in the Florida Constitution. To get there, I I think they have to follow the path that the state lays down for them, which is to argue that the Florida Constitution protects only informational privacy. That is, that the state can't get information you hold private but may not protect decisional privacy at all. That is what you do in your private life, whether that's how you parent your children, whether that's how you make medical decisions, or whether you decide to carry a pregnancy to term. Some of the justices seem worried about this because decisional privacy applies beyond abortion to a number of other rights that we exercise and that it seems any viable right of privacy should include. The Chief Justice Carlos Muniz said, You're asking us to essentially take a whole class of human beings and put them outside the protection of the law. So appear to be suggesting that he considers fetuses to be human beings. 
Yes, I suppose a broadest reading um, and the broadest decision would go and say that fetuses have constitutional rights under the state constitution. Now, Chief Justice Munoz didn't seem to have any other buyers to this theory. The state is not asking the court to do that, and it would, in fact, throw Florida law into chaos. Things like inheritance and taxation, property, the status of frozen embryos would all be thrown into question if the court determined that fetuses have constitutional rights. But Munoz suggested a number of times that the fetus was a person with constitutional rights. If, as you suspect, the court rules against Planned Parenthood here, what will that do to abortion access in Florida and and in the South? Overruling the right to abortion in Florida will be devastating to abortion access. Florida is a very populous state. It is a very long state geographically, which means those who live in the south of Florida have very long distances to travel to access abortion. So it will be quite devastating. And of course, at the moment, abortion is banned post-15 weeks. This presents lots of difficulties in particular for those facing pregnancy complications or fetal anomalies. But the vast majority, around the 90th percentile of abortions are taking place in the first trimester. And so those abortions have not been impacted by the 15-week ban. A six-week ban basically does away with abortion. And we saw that in Texas when SB8 went into effect before Dobbs was overruled and banned abortion at six weeks. An abortion rights group, Floridians Protecting Freedom, is working to get an abortion rights referendum on the state's 2024 ballot. And apparently they hit the threshold of signatures needed to trigger state Supreme Court review of the ballot questions language. According to a recent study by the Public Religion Research Institute, 64 percent of Floridians believe abortion should be legal in all or most cases. I mean, is this ballot referendum the only sort of hope that Floridians have for keeping abortion legal in their state? Yeah. So if the Supreme Court were to determine that the right of privacy doesn't encompass abortion, then enacting a constitutional amendment to protect abortion explicitly becomes necessary. But what we have seen, of course, is Ron DeSantis engaging in counter-majoritarian tactics, stacking the Florida Supreme Court with arch-conservatives. And so I think we have cause to be worried about what they might do with the ballot initiative language. Are there any parameters for what the Supreme Court can do with the ballot language? We saw some of this in Ohio, where the anti-choice groups kept going to the courts in an effort to change the language, in an effort to challenge the language, in an effort to make the language misleading to voters in hopes that that would lead them to vote in the wrong direction on the referenda. So I think there are a number of strategies, and courts can be allies of the anti-abortion movement. Turning to another issue about the abortion pill. The Biden administration and the abortion bill manufacturer are asking the Supreme Court to get back into the abortion issues after that Fifth Circuit decision. So tell us about that Fifth Circuit decision, how restricting it was. The Fifth Circuit essentially takes us back to pre-2016, which means that medication abortion is only available 
up to seven weeks rather than 10 weeks where it is currently approved, that it would require multiple in-person visits to a provider in place of the telehealth that we now have for medication abortion. So we'd revert to a different regulatory regime. We'd have to revert to new labels, which would mean the pharmaceutical company would have to pull all of medication abortion from the market and go through a process of redoing the labeling and the packaging of the medication, and it would really restrict access. The Supreme Court knows this is coming because the Supreme Court, of course, already saw this case at the beginning of the summer and anticipated that the Fifth Circuit might, in fact, do what it did and thus issued a stay until it determines whether to grant a petition for cert or decides on the petition for cert from the government. So currently, medication abortion is still available as it was before, and I think it's likely that the Supreme Court will have to take up this issue and issue a decision on the merits. What's sort of astonishing is the way the Fifth Circuit is putting itself in the place of experts at the FDA. What's most astonishing to your neighborhood law professors and lawyers is that the Fifth Circuit found standing here. I mean, these are doctors who cannot show that the change in labeling affected them at all. There's no injury to them from the move from the pre-existing regulations to what is existent today. They don't have standing here. This is just the basic federal courts 101. You have to be injured, and they're not. And we see really expansive notions of standing that would really allow anti-abortion and other sort of anti-HIV AIDS treatment groups to come into the courts and challenge regulatory approval of drugs, changes in their labeling, second-guessing the agency. I want to also ask you about new anti-abortion ordinances that have been adopted in several Texas counties where they're dubbed abortion trafficking, and it could make driving someone to get an abortion punishable by law? I believe there's only one municipality that has passed the law. Lano, Texas, made headlines for proposing it but have tabled the ordinance. So these new ordinances, I think, present real challenges to uh, the constitutional right to travel, which does protect people's movements within the states they live in. So I think we could expect that if it were to be enforced, sort of hard to know what that would look like, that we could see claims based around the right to travel. But mostly I think it's meant to make people afraid. Even the news about it makes people afraid, makes them think simply traveling in a car with a person of reproductive age could be enough to subject you to suspicion or surveillance from police. It seems like abortion rights are a constant fight on so many levels. So, I mean, I actually find great hope in the fact that there are people fighting. Looking at Ohio, for instance, and folks coming out in August to vote, on a referendum that wasn't entirely clearly related to abortion until the abortion rights movement made it really clear, right? They put in a lot of hours, a lot of shoe leather, making sure that enough voters got out in a very off time for an important vote. There's a lot going on in this area. Thanks so much, Liz, for helping us keep up to date. That's Elizabeth Sepper, a professor at the University of Texas at Austin Law School. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The government is offering settlements of up to $450,000 to compensate Camp Lejeune veterans and others who say they were sickened by the toxic water on the North Carolina Marine Base. The plan comes as more than 93,000 claims have been filed and as some sick veterans have complained about the slow pace of resolving those claims. Government and plaintiffs' attorneys are fighting over how to move forward with civil trials in the Eastern District of North Carolina. About 1,100 lawsuits have already been filed by those whose claims were rejected or weren't resolved quickly enough by the Navy. And the court system there is bracing for thousands more in what could become one of the largest mass torts in history. Joining me is the lead counsel for the plaintiffs, Ed Bell. Ed, tell us a little about the history of the Camp Lejeune litigation? Well, we started our Camp Lejeune claims back in 2007 and immediately learned that the government was going to uh, request dismissal of the claims due to a, an odd law in North Carolina which indicated that if you didn't file your claims within 10 years of the exposure to the water, then your claims were, were lost. And we thought that was kind of a crazy law, and we didn't think it'd be a problem. But apparently it turned out to be. And so over the last, over that maybe five or six years, through a lot of appellate um, work in, in courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, we were eventually kicked out of court. But the, the instructions we got from the courts were um, they can't really change the law in North Carolina the legislature in North Carolina needs to change it. So we went back to uh, North Carolina, and at that time, now Senator Tom Tillis was Speaker of the House, Tom Tillis, and he helped us and got a, a bill passed in the Senate and the, the legislature, to uh, or the House, and they, they fixed the problem. And then we went back to the appellate courts and said they fixed the problem, you told us to go get it fixed, and they said, well, that's good prospectively in the future, but you can't make it retroactive. So eventually, eventually we realized that we were going to need some help from Congress in Washington, and in fact, that's what we did. So we started uh, drafting a statute and started working it through Congress, and eventually it got passed in August of last year, 2022. So... The Navy still hasn't paid out a claim, but the government is offering now settlements of up to $450,000 to compensate some veterans and others. What's your take on this offer? Well, my first comment is it's a, it's a start, um, but they put the wrong foot forward. Um, if you really understand what happens with this offer, then you realize it's really not, it is awful. Um, give you an example. The highest payout is if you live there more than five years. This is a training base. So very few people live to work there over five years. Uh, we have uh, two sisters who lived there 15 years, whose father was a, a principal at one of the schools. Um, so they, they, of course, would be in 
that top tier. But those two sisters both have got have had two separate cancers each, and have four other currently uh, they're currently being di- diagnosed with four additional diagnoses each. So each one of those sisters who lived on the base 15 years has had already six six diagnosable diseases that came from the water each. And it's fairly understandable because this is a dose-related reaction. The more water you drink, the worse your, 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 your result. So under their circumstances, the best they could get would be either the 400 or the 450 because they lived there 15 years. But they've got six diseases each. And, and so in anybody's fairness doctrine, that just doesn't work. The second thing is a lot of these folks who have, um, who've had cancer uh, are in the later stages in life. Uh, their circumstances are such that uh, they may feel like they have to take it. And the overwhelming response I'm getting from our clients is that they feel like the government's trying to buy them off. And it's a, it's a very negative response from the from the clients. So think about it this way: if Mrs. Jones decides that she has um, uh, multiple myeloma, and she's been and she was lived on the base a year, and she takes a hundred thousand dollars, but a year, a year and a half from now, the multiple myeloma ends up paying out you know, 10 times that amount, then how is that fair to her? And it's not. The government is taking advantage of people's circumstances. They're taking advantage of the idea that these people may be later on in their years. And, and, and And the individuals did not, they didn't do this to themselves. The government is the one who made them wait this long. And so... The government made them wait this long and now are t- trying to take advantage of that situation. I think it's totally unfair. But we, you, we, we, appreciate, we appreciate the government getting started, but this is, this is a, they, they didn't put the best foot forward. But do you think still they'll get a lot of takers on this? You know, I think they'll get some. Um, we had a, a webinar uh, we put out notice to our clients. I think we had 1,800 and something people on the webinar, which I thought was a lot for that short notice. Not a single person out of that entire 1,800 thought there was, this was a very good offer, not one. So I, I, they're going to get some people. Again, um, you may have somebody whose circumstances where they say, well, you know, I need the 100 or I need the 150 and I better take it. But how fair is that? And our government should treat people equally. And so if Mrs. Jones gets a 100000 today and Mr. Smith gets 800000 next year, uh, my proposal would be that we pay these folks who need the money now, but if they end up paying more on a disease later, then they come back and pay people equally. I think that's fair. You've been fighting or arguing with the government on how to move forward with the civil trials. Tell me how you want to handle it and how the government wants to handle it. Well, the government wants to um, take as long as they can to handle it. 
we've been we some of our clients have been waiting 30 and 40 years to have this to have something done and they they, they can't wait any longer we we're having literally people dying every week every week and it's not fair again the government knew about these chemicals in the in the water since the 70s they knew about it um they stopped and fixed the water in 87. They delayed telling people till 97. And they could have told people earlier so they could get screening and early um, uh, diagnosis, which they didn't do. Thousands of people died because of the government's problems because of what they did and the cover-up. But yet the government doesn't want to do something quickly and doesn't want to help people. Well, that's why people are upset because... They, they, it's not the money that gets them upset. It's, it's, no one's asking the question, how could this have happened? Why isn't Congress interested in finding out why it happened? Who's supposed to be responsible for it? And what can we do to not have this happen again? Otherwise, history's going to repeat itself if we don't figure that out. Most of, most of our clients don't ask, how much is this case worth? They want to know what happened to them. How did I lose my my wife, my children? Why did I have three miscarriages? Why were my two children, um, why did they die two days after they were born? They don't give a happy damn about the money. They need to know, they have to have answers. And so for the government, not one, not to give them the answers and then come up and try to take advantage of their age and their infirmities, they think it's uh, unfair. I want to point out that Justice Department lawyers signal they need more time to prepare, saying only that a start date of some time in 2024 was possible, and that the Undersecretary of the Navy, Eric Raven, said in a statement, we are committed to ensuring that every valid Camp Lejeune claim is resolved fairly and as expeditiously as possible. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com. So, Ed, are you looking to have a bellwether trial? Well, our proposal, which is pending before the court now, um, asks the court to give us bellwether trials based on disease. So, for example, we may have uh, all the clients would have a certain or similar disease, and they may have different um, different um, uh, stages of that disease. Let's say you had bladder cancer, caught it early, it was cured. Somebody had bladder cancer that was caught mid-stage, had to have extensive treatment. Then someone who had bladder cancer, extensive treatment eventually died, or it metastasized and they had multiple cancer issues there. So there are different values for each person who may have the same disease but have different results. And so I think a, a bellwether case would, would have the ability to tell us and tell the, the government this is what a jury thinks is proper. And you can have several of those. You don't have to just rely on one one bellwether. You can have, you know, multiple bellwethers. 
and I think that's a fair way. Um, but what is the government want? Oh, they, they don't want that. They want separate they, trials uh, for everyone, for each person? It, it is funny. They, 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 I think they recognize that they need to have some guidance as well, but the, the construct of how these cases is going to be tried um, they, they're kind of, I wouldn't use the word skittish, but they are not very definitive about um, how they think it ought to go. They do think that first trials ought to start in 2025. We believe ours should start the first quarter in 2024. We're ready, we're ready for them. When will this be decided? Well, this, our proposed alternate orders are before the court now. We're waiting to hear from them any day. I know there was a challenge to your appointment as lead counsel. Is that settled yet? The court has an issue in order. We we responded with a brief last week, and uh, so that's pending before the court. But to be honest with you, um, the courts have multiple courts all over the country have done the same thing. Eastern District of North Carolina did this. There's no, no error in that at all. I know that there were 93,000 claims filed. How many lawsuits do you think you'll end up with? Well, the, the secret behind the Campbell's Union Justice Act is something we tried to prevent what happens in a lot of mass torts. And in most mass torts, you are required to file your lawsuit because if you don't, you're going to miss the statute of limitations. So therefore, the courts just get overwhelmed with thousands and thousands of lawsuits. So what we did is we set up the system where someone could file their claim with the Navy, and that would toll the statute of limitations. And then they don't actually have to file their lawsuit if they don't want to. They can wait on the settlement process, or they can file their lawsuit, but there's no rush to the courthouse. So it's uh, pretty nifty the way it it turned out, and, and right now they're about a a thousand cases that are filed, um, and then they're not, and the court's not getting overwhelmed with all the filings. Thanks so much, Ed. That's Ed Bell, lead plaintiff's counsel in the Camp Lejeune cases. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.